I want to see a world where everyone has to compete on a level playing field, including the corporations, including these these too big to fail entities. They should be able to fail because then we will see, you know, when the tide goes out, who actually has value. Um, and I think it's sad that for the last decade we've been so propped up by easy money and these low interest rates. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Natalie Brunel. Natalie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Uh, so do you remember the first time you ever heard about Bitcoin? Like, did you originally buy into the idea when you first heard about it? Did you understand it fully or were you skeptical? I did not. I was very skeptical. So I think I relate to a lot of folks out there who see this space and they see the volatility and they're, you know, very, um, very nervous about it. And I first heard about it in 2017. It was really because of the friend group that I had. I was living in Sacramento, California at the time. I was a local news reporter on TV and I was covering mostly state, state legislature and breaking news. Um, but I had a group of friends who were in the San Francisco area and some of them knew people at Coinbase or one of them lost money on Mount Gox. And so they were just, they were talking the vocabulary and I thought that it was just kind of the new trendy thing, right? I thought Silicon Valley is always on, on top of the latest things when it comes to technology, whether it's Facebook to Uber to whatever. And I thought, well, you know, this is like a digital stock or something that could potentially go to zero and, um, and inherently carries a lot of risk because it's digital. And I wish that I could talk to, you know, myself back then and, and hand myself all the books that I've read since and, and just tell myself to really take a closer look because I feel like, oh, you know, I, I was always a good saver, but I saved in, in a traditional way. I didn't, um, I didn't invest. I didn't know how to invest and I could have put a lot more money in than, than, uh, than when the price went up. So I, I wish that I could go back in time, but we all get Bitcoin at the price we deserve, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I definitely think it's, it's interesting how like back in 2017, there definitely weren't that many great books to read about what Bitcoin is. And now we have much more like influential people, people speaking about it, like you much more authors writing great books about it. I'm curious, like, why are you so passionate about telling the world about Bitcoin? I know like you had the, your career as a journalist before this, but now you've basically pivoted and you're basically full-time Bitcoin. Why are you so passionate about this? Yeah, for sure. So I think that it's definitely because of two um, things in my background and experience, one being my news career. Um, but first, I think I want to take it even further back. Uh, my, my family, as most people know who follow me, first generation immigrants from Eastern Europe. My parents grew up under communism. They understood the meaning of hard money. They were gold bugs. And, uh, and they had this like natural distrust for the government. And so that's kind of the attitude I was raised under. And they came here for the American dream. And I saw them work really, really hard. And I saw what happened to them in the great financial crisis, because when that bubble popped, my parents lost everything. And I just, I didn't understand at the time I was in college. And I was so confused how my parents who I saw being these very hardworking immigrants who played by all the rules, did the right things. How could they lose everything? You know, what's, what felt like overnight. 
and and have to start over. And so I entered into my career as a journalist with this sort of seed planted that a I don't trust you know the government and something's rigged like something feels off and unfair because the Wall Street you know corporations and the banks they got bailed out, but. 10 million families in America, including mine, lost their homes and, and, and people were set so far back with that recession before quantitative easing, you know, really took over and allowed these new asset bubbles to form. And so I had this in the back of my mind, but I, you know, financial literacy in this country, wow, we really need to do some work because I was always a really good student. I had that ingrained in me as, as an immigrant. My, my parents were very, very strict. And if I got anything less than an A, I was in big trouble. So, so I was a good student. And, and yet I feel like none of the information that I really needed was ever put before me. I never learned about different economic theories and what money printing is and how our banking system works. And so I, I didn't, and I didn't learn about that until I discovered Bitcoin. So, um, you know, I entered into my career as a journalist and I spent 10 years really reporting on the things that were, um, evolving in our country when it came to this, I, I think growing polarization and popul and populism because people felt so left behind and the cost of living was going up, the cost of education going up every year, the cost of, you know, everything around you basically going up. And the average person, especially if they're young, feeling like they're they're already behind when they graduate from college. And I didn't I didn't, you know, match the two things together. I didn't understand how the financial system was really at the core of all of these problems and how our money was being devalued by our leaders. And and Bitcoin taught me all of that. So, you know, I think that I had sort of that seed planted. So when I started to learn about Bitcoin, I was already intrigued and I had a pain point from my family. Um, but then I had to really do the work and go down the rabbit hole. And that honestly took, it took years. And I, and I still learn new things about Bitcoin every day. Totally. I mean, I, I'm the same way. I, I constantly, I feel like I'm learning more and more about Bitcoin and no one quite fully understands what Bitcoin is. I think it's interesting that you brought up the idea that like for people that really get Bitcoin, a lot of them just naturally feel like the system, the financial system is rigged to some extent. And you brought the idea of, uh, you know, people or students or children like needing to learn more about like financial uh, whatever, like learning about how the economic system works. Um, but also I feel like like in college, if you go to like a top business school or whatever, they're not going to teach you like Austrian economics and they're not going to be like, hey, save Bitcoin. Why do you necessarily think that is? And do you think that's going to shift maybe over time? Yeah, I mean, I think that over time, our education system is really a reflection of, of our government and everything has become increasingly centralized. And, you know, I'm definitely one of those people who believes that most people are good. And I think a lot of, a lot of bad things can happen from good intentions. And so if we look over history at, you know, social programs and government programs that started out with this idea to come in and help or to fix a problem, they actually have created so many bigger problems and they destroy the incentives that really lie at the heart of a, a true capitalistic society, which I think we've veered away from. And so you're right. I mean, I, I do feel like the system is rigged because I feel like it advantages the people who are at the top, the people who are the elites, the people that are closest to the money printer and to the government at the expense of everybody else. And I don't think that that's fair. And I think it leads to an increasingly divided, polarized world, because if people no longer feel 
uh, a sense of economic dignity and a sense of hope that their their situation and their their family situation can be better than whatever they grew up with, then I think people start to pull apart and they look for places to blame and they look for ways to vent their frustration. And today, with social media and the way that our our, our world is digitized, it's easy to vent those frustrations and see them really, you know, the the seams come apart. And so I think we're at a very, you know critical time. We're at an inflection point. And, and it's so amazing to me that we have something like Bitcoin because, you know, I try to poke holes in it all the time. I try to look for the things that could be its biggest threat or, or vulnerabilities. And the more that I look for those, the more my conviction is actually strengthened because if not Bitcoin, I don't, I don't see where the hope would be in terms of reordering the system and, and creating maybe a new foundation that is more accessible and equitable. Uh, I really do think that it could layer, level the playing field and, and, and create more equal opportunity for more people. Um, and that would be a beautiful thing because I think that it, that type of world would create more prosperity for more people as opposed to seeing it pool with the smaller and smaller and smaller portion of the pie. Um, and so for me, Bitcoin is a lot about sort of like creating a renaissance for the American dream. But beyond that, for, for around the world, for people to have more access to financial freedom and, and the opportunity to create value in an economy that's not manipulated, where, where the base layer of, of money and the cost of capital is not manipulated. Yeah, definitely. Um, so since you have this background, I guess, as a journalist, you're, you're able to speak very clearly and intelligently about Bitcoin. And I think that's something that, you know, the Bitcoin space has been lacking. Uh, in the last few years, I guess we've gotten better and there's been more intelligent, thoughtful speakers. But how do you like how are you such a good speaker? Like, what do you do to practice? I know I'm sure you've had lots of practice, but like what advice do you have to people that are like looking to maybe communicate about Bitcoin in a more intelligent way or communicate about anything? Well, I really appreciate that. That's very kind of you. I do really think that um, repetition is is sort of the the thing that creates a skill set. Just repeating and doing something over and over again, sort of that ten thousand hour rule. Um, so I, you know, I I was a journalist for ten years, and a lot of people don't know how it works to be like a TV broadcaster. And really, you work pretty much all day, eight, nine, ten hours to create. 90 seconds of television, which a lot of people don't realize. You go out there, you interview the people that you, you know, need to interview for your story. Um, you piece together as much information as possible, and you have before you hours of work that you need to condense into um, a very short amount of time. And so you really learn to be good at, at distilling what's most important. Um, finding ways to say it in a way that's very clear and concise to an audience that may have different backgrounds and, and are easily distracted because people are probably watching TV while they're doing a million other things. And you learn, um, you learn to kind of incorporate things that I think are universal, which, which drive at the heart of a lot of the stories through emotion. And so I think for me, it's just been 10 years of every single day honing those skills. Every single day I would be working on some type of story where I would have to get the who, what, where, when, how, why, and distill it and condense it into something that's easy to understand. Um, and, and then you just go live, you practice, you know, you're always constantly talking in front of the, the camera four or five times a night going live and in different newscasts. And so I think that really helped me. And, 
Um, you know, I'm trying to bring that skill set to Bitcoin because Bitcoin is so nuanced and it really, it's such an onion that you need to start to peel and you need to start asking questions like, what is money? You know, how does an economy function? How does banking work? Um, how has sort of um, access to capital and opportunity changed over the years? And there's, there's so much there. And I think it's really fascinating. You're constantly, like I said, learning. I love, I'm learning something every single day. And, and I, I, I find it just to be this like endless quest for knowledge. Um, and so, you know, for people to translate that message to the average person who might be, you know, an accountant or a hairdresser or a school teacher, it's finding those things that resonate with everyone. And I think when you boil it down to some of those simple fundamental things, the first principles that Bitcoin stands for, you're able to reach a lot of people and at least spark their curiosity so that they, they start to dig in themselves. And, and those things are really, you know, I kind of mentioned them earlier, but just this idea of opportunity and hope, like for so many people, I think Bitcoin provides hope, whether you're here in the U S um, and we're more privileged than so many other nations, or you're in, in countries around the world where maybe you're uh, experiencing a more oppressive regime or government and you need to escape that in real time, you need to escape more significant inflation. I mean, Bitcoin is serving a purpose all over the world, whether it's um, a medium of exchange and an, an, a form of banking for people who has, have never had bank accounts to a, an an amazing savings technology in the West that's the best performing asset um, that's existed in the last 13 years. So yeah, I just, I, I love Bitcoin and talking about Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I think we all do if we're here uh, on a podcast about Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think it's very interesting how you, you brought the idea of you had to learn a lot about a specific topic, I guess, for your, your news reports, and you boiled it all down to 90 seconds. I kind of feel like it's very similar to Bitcoin. It's a massive yeah. topic that covers so many different verticals. And on Bitcoin Twitter every day, we're boiling down different narratives into you know 240 characters or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's very similar. And I think over time, like you said, you know the narratives are getting a lot more concise, and, and, and people are starting to pick them up more, more and more. Yeah, and I think especially just in the last two years, there is such a value proposition when it comes to Bitcoin because of how much money printing we saw, the amount that power um, concentrated, and, and how um, central authorities really exerted a lot more power than they ever have with COVID lockdowns. And I think a lot of people are questioning things, this idea of, you know, where does my money come from? Why was the supply expanded? Why did it create these, you know, bubbles within our stock market and real estate? We hit, you know, I remember that time, you know, at the, I don't know if it was the end of 2020 or so, but it was like every day, a new record for the S&P. Every day, it was just like, boom. But yet Main Street was shut down. Businesses were going out. They were becoming completely dependent on the government. And it's just, I think it led a lot of people to question where our money comes from, how these markets function, what they rely on, and, and what the average person really you know, suffers from when it comes to cost of living and affording, affording a life for your family. Uh, and it, and it's so obvious that the people who hold the assets and hold all the real estate and hold all the stocks, they are at such an advantage and they can use leverage through our system that's based on credit and debt to become so much more wealthy 
And everybody else, you know, is, is trying to catch up and now is dealing with inflation that's very real and affects their daily goods. And and that's not fair. That's not the kind of world that I want to see. I want to see a world where everyone has to compete on a level playing field, including the corporations, including these these two big to fail entities. They should be able to fail because then we will see, you know, when the tide goes out, who actually has value. Um, and I think it's sad that for the last decade, We've been so propped up by easy money and these low interest rates that we don't even know which companies actually have value. They've just been getting easy credit lines to buy back stocks, um, buy back shares of their stock and issue more more shares. And it's just that's not that's not value. That's not an economy that's providing um, you know opportunity and prosperity to a ton of people. It's making a bunch of you know, executives wealthier and it's propping up bubbles in the stock market. But is it making our country more productive? Is it making our country better? No. And again, I think that um, the last two years have exposed a lot. And so I'm glad that a lot of people are questioning these things and hopefully they're finding Bitcoin as a potential solution. Yeah, totally. I saw this thread on Twitter the other day that was talking about how like a lot of middle-class America, I guess, stores a lot of their wealth in real estate. And it's basically, I guess, because it's one of the only assets that people are able to go 10x or 20x long because it's the only way to get uh, credit uh, as a normal person. So I thought that was kind of interesting and really related to what you said. Um, I'm curious, oh, you're going to add on or any, anything else? No, I think that's really important. Um, you know, Jeff Booth does a great job talking about this in his book, Price of Tomorrow. He talks about how... You know, the majority of Americans, they store their wealth in their home and their home is appreciated, but it's not because their home has increased in value. It's because the amount of units in the system has increased. And James Lavish had a really interesting tweet this week just showing how, you know, your house may have gone up in value, but it's because the money has expanded that much. It's not because your house is actually worth anymore. And so you've lost purchasing power and it's sort of reflected in, in the house and how much it's gone up, but you haven't actually built real wealth. And I feel like all of us sort of live in this mirage, this facade that, oh, we have a house that's gone up in value, therefore I'm wealthier. But that's not the case. That's that's not, again, bringing, bringing prosperity to everybody. It's just locking your money up in a place that's not oozing out in terms of its value as fast as cash. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like many people would intuitively understand, but in the world that we live in, it's just kind of the way it works. And people think, oh, real estate, right. I store value in real estate. So yeah, great point. Um, I'm curious, who's like the most interesting person that you've met, like going to Bitcoin conferences or even going back to being a journalist? Is there anything that any one person that you're like, wow, that was pretty cool? Yeah. I mean, I have so many, um, so many people I look up to in this space and, and mentors now. I, I'm grateful to call some of these people friends or mentors. I would say, you know, some of the biggest names for me have been really influential. Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Preston Pish, uh, Jeff Booth. Those are the names that come immediately to mind because I just think that they're so smart but also thoughtful. And, and one thing that I really love about this space and all of those names who I've mentioned, especially after getting to know them in person, they're driven by something that is ethical, that is greater than themselves. And, and it's something that I, I really resonate with because Bitcoin is not about 
you know, chasing a quick buck to, to just get rich and then cash out and, and boom, you're, you're done and thinking about the next thing. Bitcoin is this, it's this revolution. It's this movement. It's a, it's a, it's potentially a, a total paradigm shift in the way that we transact value and carry value long into the future but it's built on a foundation that is technically and ethically sound and all of those voices kind of speak to that and and they you've never seen them kind of hawking other projects or things or you know um they don't attach themselves to to random companies they they truly um are are talking about the big picture the ethos of how this fits into the macro landscape and how this affects the idea of of money and economies um at a large scale and so i i really look up to all of them and i uh i'm very grateful that this space has allowed me to meet them and interview them yeah totally those are some great names in the space and yeah i think if you know, everyone in this space was in Bitcoin to get rich quick or to make a quick buck. We probably would have all quit this year. So <laughs> it's a good yeah. sign. Um, yeah, um, I do want to know a few other things. So I think a lot of people, you know, like Bitcoin adoption is definitely growing. Um, and like you said, the last two years has made Bitcoin a lot more obvious and a lot more clear to many people. But there's still, you know, a majority of the world doesn't have you know, a significant amount of their wealth uh, in Bitcoin. Why do you think people have such a hard time understanding Bitcoin? Uh, because I think that you have to unlearn a lot of what you know in order to have the um, sort of intellectual humility, humility and um, and and curiosity to start to learn about Bitcoin. You have to really be able to question the current situation, the current paradigm, and and the current trends that you live in that you might have thought could never change. You know, here in the U.S. Uh, most of us were not around when um, when we went off the gold standard and people were investing in the last inflationary period during the 70s and 80s. And, uh, and we certainly have not, uh, most of us have not been around to see anything but the dollar as the global reserve currency. And so how do you start to really peel back the layers of, um, of, of whether there could be something else that could replace it or at least right alongside it. And again, I think that so many people don't understand the current banking system. I mean, the idea of money printing never meant what it does now until I learned about Bitcoin. I, 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 if I ever heard the words money printing in the past, I would just think, oh, that's the government, you know, just printing dollars and there's nothing wrong with that. I didn't understand this idea that inflation is sort of embedded into our economy, but is it actually helpful? Because, you know, when you listen to these great voices, like people like Michael Saylor, and they explain to you in such a crystallized way, a thoughtful way, you know, if you take something and you apply inflation over a hundred years, all of a sudden you, it's gone. Like your cash is gone. Or if you think about the amount of taxes you pay on a property and in addition to maintenance fees, it's like your money's bleeding out. Like how do you stop the bleed? How do you, how do you make it so that your purchasing power and the, the economic energy that, 
that money represents can transcend into the future without being diluted, debased, um, without extracting the value along the way. And so I, I, you start to think about these things that you know you, you never really questioned before because we're in this current system and, and we have the powers that be that I think a lot of people also think are too powerful to overtake. And yet we have this organic grassroots technology network that is moving at the speed of light and it's growing every single year and it's asking no one's permission. And I think it's one of the most organic movements that we've had. It's truly the people's money. And, um, and now it's grown to a point where I don't believe it can be stopped. I don't believe that any government could do very much to it except maybe decelerate the, the growth of on-ramps or, uh, or tax it a ton. But uh, no, it's just, I think that people just have a difficult time questioning their the current system, especially if they don't have a, a really good understanding of economics. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on the whole SBF debacle? Is he just going to, you know, be in the Bahamas forever? Or do you think he might get arrested at some point? And also, like, <laughs> why do you think the media isn't necessarily painting him as this, you know, obvious v- villain? Yeah, it's, I'm really disappointed by everything that's happened with SBF, and it's you know it's sad that Bitcoin looks bad in this whole thing, especially for people who don't understand the space. Um, but it's neutral; it did nothing wrong. It was just cross collateralized, and and people like SBF create these paper um, paper versions of Bitcoin, and and that's so unethical. Um, so my reaction is, I I hope that. The DOJ, I hope that the SEC, I hope that law enforcement agencies go after him and bring him in and formally charge him because, in my opinion, what he did was fraudulent. It was a Ponzi scheme. It was to enrich himself. Um, I mean, the fact that he was basically loaning money using an air, air token as collateral, loaning money to himself, that people affiliated with him, including his parents, may have purchased expensive properties. Um, this is wrong. This is not what this revolution of Bitcoin and removing the power of money from the state, this is not what this is about. It's not about enriching a small group of individuals who think that they you know, you know, have the right decisions on how the future should be created. Um, it's it's wrong, and he duped so many smart people, which is amazing to me. You know these these massive institutions, from the VCs to these celebrities who had a ton of money. You would think that they would all do their due diligence to make sure that they're not just like putting their money into a group of of you know Silicon Valley former Ivy League nerds who are going to basically wash trade it with themselves to pump up the value and take out loans and to become their own bank and take out credit lines and then trade it and and pay off politicians and then lose all the money. I mean, this is ridiculous. And they did it all offshore for a reason because everything that they did is inherently illegal. Um, And so I hope that it's a huge lesson. I hope that in the end, I think it actually strengthens Bitcoin and, and what Bitcoin's all about and Bitcoin's value proposition. But in the meantime, I just I just hope that these policymakers actually hold him accountable and take the time to learn about why this happened and how. Um, the fact that he's sort of, as of right now, getting a little, little bit of a pass, like Rep, Representative uh, Maxine Waters, I think, tweeted at him something 
that was equivalent to, you know, oh, you know, please talk to us, Sam, come, come, come. Thank you for explaining the things that have been going wrong. It's like, no, hold this guy accountable. This is the Bernie Madoff of crypto right now. And everybody's just sort of, you know, approaching him on eggshells. And I don't understand that. Um, so I, I think that charges will come down. I saw that Caroline Ellison was spotted in New York. I'm sure she's working with an attorney who wants to get her some sort of a plea deal. The only way that that'll happen is if she divulges a ton of information. So I think it's going to be a couple of people pitted against each other, Caroline versus SBF. And we're going to learn more in the coming days. And I don't buy any of the crap he's been selling to the media. Like he's, he knew what he was doing. He just thought he would get away with it to be able to, you know, complete his mission and plan of whatever he wants to do with all that money. But, um, but it was wrong. He was using customer funds and he, he, he should be in jail, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty insane how it got so big and how so many like big names, whether it's like Tom Brady or Sequoia, mm-hmm. uh, were just full fledged behind FTX and SPF. It's, it's pretty mm-hmm. wild. Um, do you have any thoughts and you may not have too many ideas on this, but do you have any thoughts on Tether? I know it's kind of been like a controversial topic in the space. And I think I've seen like before this Tether or someone had claimed that Alameda, which was the research arm behind FTX, was one of the like top mentors of Tethers. I think they had like supposedly sent over $20 billion to Tether to mint USDT. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's weird how they're so interconnected and, uh, and, and, you know, Tether's obviously been a subject of controversy for ever since the last bear market when they didn't blow up then. So maybe they won't blow up now, but do you have any, uh, thoughts on Tether? Well, you know, it is interesting what you mentioned about how everything is interconnected, cross-collateralized, and I think there are more dominoes that are are yet to fall. Um, specifically about the the company Tether, I I don't have um, I don't have strong opinions because I I lack the the, the knowledge in depth. But I will say that um, you know I do think that stable coins are a part of this this evolution and this ecosystem, and I think that they are going to be important. They're they're the way that people access dollars across the world, and they've served a really important purpose. And so I've I've known of people in different countries that you know use these stable coins in order to acquire dollars to to either use them as a medium of exchange or use them as an on ramp to to purchase things like Bitcoin. And so um, you know I think that. Stable coins, they have to be very transparent in what how their reserves are backed up so that the peg maintains, you know, its its integrity. And I uh, I think in the future we're gonna have, you know, I think more um, not only more information from from the people that run these stable coins, but also um, more accountability that that customers are demanding because obviously you you want to know that what you're putting your money into actually has the reserves and the backing that um, the people who are developing the the technology say say they do. So um, specifically on Tether, not sure, but I I think that stable coins are an important part of this future. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think stable coins do solve a problem, especially for people outside the U.S. that need dollars to save in mm-hmm. and may not be able to take Bitcoin's day-to-day volatility. But yeah, for the, just for the record, for the audience, I don't also don't necessarily have a strong opinion on Tether. There's definitely some red flags, but they've survived the last bear market. So, you know, who's to say they can't survive this one as well? And if they just hold a bunch of treasuries, they're making a lot of money right now. So it's pretty good business. Um, 
What's your like best explanation for why Bitcoin and not altcoins? Uh, I mean, if you really dig into the technology, you find the the true value in the decentralization and the scarcity and the security that Bitcoin offers that none of the other altcoins represent. I mean, everything else, for the most part, I view as an unregistered security. And there's nothing wrong with securities, right? I mean, a lot of people invest in Apple and Google and MicroStrategy, and all of those are securities. But every single year, they have to disclose, you know, hundreds of of papers of pages worth of of the risks and the and the things that customers need to know and that's something we don't have yet in this ecosystem because it's so new and still evolving and it's it's a couple steps ahead of the regulators um but that being said i mean you can't recreate bitcoin bitcoin has now spread over the last it's coming on you know 14 years now um, nodes are distributed across the entire world that are maintaining that ledger and maintaining the integrity of the consensus mechanism. And it's tied to energy. It's tied like the proof of work aspect that's tied to energy. It's encrypted energy. And, and there's a cost to try to verify um, there. You know, I, there's nothing that's been created that has that strength, that security, that um that decentralization and all of that has value and it's it's allowed bitcoin to gain the type of network effect that it has um you know i think that the other blockchains they are often missing one of those aspects of the triangle and i i want to refer people to jeff booth's writing i don't know if he was the first one to create the idea of the blockchain trilemma but he certainly beautifully eloquently wrote about it recently in an article called finding signal in a noisy world. And he talks about the idea of, you know, you basically have to pick two of the three on the triangle. You can never have all three and that's decentralization, scalability, and security. And with Bitcoin, because of the la uh, layer two lightning network, you actually have all three for the very first time before you were sacrificing something. If you wanted it to be more scalable, you were probably going to sacrifice the decentralization or the security or both. Um, if you wanted it to be, you know, more secure, you might, there's a cost to all of this, right? And I think that a lot of people are trying to solve problems through blockchain, not realizing that in the end, you, you can't recreate something like proof of work in this distributed system without a great cost. And, and, and who's going to pay that cost, right? Um, why wouldn't you just have a database? And if you have a database, that's ultimately centralized. And so I think that people have all these ideas they want to run with, but on a technical level and on an ethical level, they, they can't be solved. Um, Bitcoin solves all those problems, and that's why it's, it's a true commodity and why it, it is the only true money within the crypto ecosystem. All the others are crypto platforms, crypto securities, crypto art, crypto. So, you know, they, they have different functions, but they're not true money, a store of value, a global neutral reserve asset. And so I think that, you know, you have to have an appreciation for proof of work, um, for how the nodes operate, uh, for the consensus mechanism, for the brilliance that Satoshi invented. And then you start to see that none of these other projects really compare. And Ethereum's roadmap, I think, is very uncertain. Um, I think it's going to have a lot of problems ahead. I think that the centralization from pa the past and into the future is pretty is pretty evident. And so um, I would not I would not put my money into Ethereum, even though when I began this journey, I did think it was going to be maybe Bitcoin and then Ethereum and then a couple others. I've since really changed my mind on that.
Yeah, definitely. I mean, even when I first got in, I wasn't a full like Bitcoin only focused uh, investor, I guess. But now at this point, I am. But yeah, I think my thought also is just economic systems converge on on one best monetary tool. Like that's the reason we're not trading chickens for cows. We have this one intermediary tool yeah. that's used to price everything else. And if you have you know five hundred different monies, then that's kind of defeating the entire purpose of money. To what? And I think the scarcity is so important, too, because everything has an inflation rate, including gold, which was the last time we were on a hard money or sound money standard. But even gold inflates at a rate of 1.5 to 2% every single year. So there's a bleed out, right, um, that we talked about earlier. And and within Ethereum, you know, what's the circulating supply? No one can answer that. And with a lot of these other coins, including the FTT token, it's like so many are created and then some are burned. And it's like this constantly, um, you know, expanding and and contracting supply when at the base layer, I think that to have the most stable economy in the future is to have a finite supply of, of, of the money um, that's infinitely divisible so that you, so that we don't experience the problems that are associated with inflation. Yeah, totally. And you know, Bitcoin's arguably the most immutably scarce uh, tool. You can't change it. Unlike Ethereum and every other right. coin that you've mentioned. Um, they may claim to be immutably scarce, but no one is is more is the most immutably scarce. I'd argue that's Bitcoin. Um, last question, then we'll go ahead and wrap it up. What do you think the world looks like, uh, specifically revolving around Bitcoin in twenty years? Um, so I oh gosh, that that'll be an exciting time. I think that you know uh, adoption will be definitely beyond 50% of the population. Right now we're still at just 2%, which is crazy to think about. You know, Bitcoin, say what you will, it has dipped. It's under $17,000 right now, but that's at 2% of the world population. Um, and if you look at those those like S adoption curves of technology, I mean, how quickly it's actually adopting compared to things like the internet, it's truly inspiring. So I think that the majority of the world will will be on the Bitcoin network and be transacting in and storing value in Bitcoin. Um, I don't know what the fiat USD price is going to be because I think that, you know, what is $100,000 or a million dollars worth when every single year we have such bad inflation? Um, but I do think that more people will appreciate it. I think more countries will have it in their reserves. I really do see a lot of economic opportunity for a lot of people under this type of standard. Um, it's a, certainly a world that I want to fight for and a world that I, I want to see because I think that um, we need to have money that's not easily manipulated and money that we don't transact in just because we're coerced by a central authority. I think that the next two decades will be ones of great change because I think superpowers are shifting. I think that um, on a global level, we have, you know, um, Russia and China that are making moves and those are strategic moves that also involve currencies. Uh, I think more countries will try to create central bank digital currencies. I think we will have more clarity in the crypto ecosystem. So we'll know what is a security, what's a commodity. I think Bitcoin will come out shining. Um, I think a lot of people will be able to store their wealth in this asset and it will transform. It will 
like I mentioned earlier, sort of level the playing field where there's only 21 million. There's a lot more millionaires out there and cantillionaires that have benefited from the old system. And I, I think this, this could be the world's greatest wealth transfer. I think it's a revolution. I think that it will provide a lot of people with hope and access to, to opportunity and value. And, um, I'm very bullish on it. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a great spot to end this uh, conversation at. Uh, Natalie, thanks for coming on. Where do you want to send the audience after they watch this? Oh, thank you. Well, I have a podcast called Coin Stories. That's on YouTube as well as all podcasting audio platforms. I also have a show called Hard Money, which is on my YouTube page. So if you just Google my name, Natalie Brunel, I'm on Twitter at Nat Brunel. And I also have a website you can reach out to me on TalkingBitcoin.com. Absolutely. Everybody go check that out. Uh, Thanks, Natalie. And thanks, everybody. Thank you.